So welcome back. I hope you all had a good Christmas, good Hanukkah, good New Year. And it's good to have you here tonight and it's good to, to be with you. And it's good to be with everybody that is with us in the virtual world. So I want to tell you about a movie I saw recently. I hope you won't be scandaled. Now I'm forgetting the name. The Equalizer 3. <laughs> with Denzel Washington. I don't recommend it. I'm lying. It's a good movie. But most of you won't like it. But there's a very poignant scene at the beginning of the movie, and you know Denzel Washington is this kind of heroic figure, but certainly you know his ways of bringing about goodness are usually pretty violent. Anyway, so he gets shot, and he's half dead, and he's in Italy, he's in Calabria, the southern part of Italy, and um, he's half dead by the roadside in a car. So a police officer comes and takes him and doesn't bring him to the hospital, but brings him to the local doctor who is this kind of wise old yeah. Italian man. And Denzel Washington is unconscious for a period of time. When he comes to consciousness, the doctor says to him, are you a good man or are you a bad man? And Denzel Washington pauses and he said, I don't know but I want to be a good man. I'm not going to go through the litany of the world's troubles. You know them as well as I do, and it would be depressing for me to you know, recount them. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that the world is in desperate need of goodness. There can never be too much goodness. And only goodness is going to counteract the evil. Only goodness is going to counteract the hatred that we see, the fear, the violence. Goodness is the only antidote that is going to turn things around. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, goodness. But first we have to define goodness. And it's tough to define. It's one of those things that you know it when you see it, but it's hard to put it into words. And I'll tell you in a minute why it's hard to put it into words. But let me try to wrestle with the concept of goodness. First of all, what it's not. Goodness cannot be reduced to a set of behavioral codes. Goodness cannot be reduced to some sort of prescriptive uh, rules for behavior. That can reflect goodness, but that's not goodness. Goodness isn't being, you know, goody two-shoes and having a perfect personality. That's not goodness. So what is goodness and how do we recognize goodness? 
Well, the first thing I want to say is that goodness is literally an energetic force. It's not a social construct. It's not something we create in our minds. It's not something that we kind of create in ourselves by willpower or something stoic. We can't manufacture goodness. Goodness is an energetic force. It is literally a power. It's an energy. It's a momentum. It's a dynamic that shapes life in a certain direction. So how do we recognize goodness? Because goodness makes human life flourish. Goodness makes us thrive, individually and collectively as a culture and as a world. Goodness empowers us to be the very best version of ourselves. Goodness is a force that evolves human consciousness, it evolves us individually, and it evolves the human race collectively. Examples of goodness, just words, kindness, compassion, generosity, fairness, justice, sometimes fierceness, the love of truth, strength when we need strength, endurance when we need endurance, wisdom when we need wisdom. These are all manifestations of goodness. So this begs another question. Where does goodness come from? Again, I'm saying it's not a social construct. Politicians don't create goodness. They can name it on a good day, but they don't create it. Scientists do not create goodness in the laboratory. It's a transcendental force. So let me go to one of my favorites, Francis of Assisi. God is the fullness of good, all good, every good, the true and supreme good. God alone is good. It doesn't mean we're bad out, but we'll explain that. God alone is good, merciful, and gentle, delectable, and sweet. End of quote. Another way of saying that, God is the highest good that we can possibly imagine, and then some. And what is the highest good that we can possibly imagine ultimately? It's love. And love is a force that shows up in time and space as goodness. If you go back to the Old English, the word for goodness literally means godness. So I want you to see goodness is this energy. It is this flow of love into time and space from the source of all goodness, God, that flows through us and then out from us. And because it has its source in God, and this is literally true, there is never a lack of goodness. It is inexhaustible because God is inexhaustible goodness. So the problem is not, is there enough goodness? The problem is, how do we nurture that goodness within us? How do we let it flow through us? And again, I, I mean this quite literally. 
it is overflowing. There's an excess of goodness available at every moment of our existence. And it's not just for a certain group, an economic group, a religious group, a racial group, whatever. It's for everybody. Everyone has access to it. So let me explain how that works. And while I'm opening the book here, just think about this for a moment. On a daily basis, don't you have these impulses towards good? They bubble up. And you decide to be kind to somebody, you decide to be generous to somebody, you decide to be helpful to somebody. You decide to make your bed for your wife. <laughs> Whatever. Where does that come from? It comes through you, but it doesn't originate in you. People that we call saints and sages, they're no different than you or me. They have just learned to tap into this river of goodness perpetually. It flows through them. So let me explain how that works. And I have a quote from Yogananda. And I will break this down after I read it. Identifying himself with a shallow ego, man takes for granted that it is he who thinks, wills, feels, digests meals, and keeps himself alive, never admitting through reflection and only a little would suffice, that in his ordinary life he is not but a puppet of past actions, karma, of nature, or environment. Each man's intellectual reactions, feelings, moods, and habits are merely effects of past causes, whether in this life or a prior life. Lofty above all such influences, however, is his regal soul the higher self, the transcendental self, spurning the transitory truths and freedoms, the Kriya Yogi or anybody on a seriously spiritual path passes beyond all disillusionment into his unfettered being. The world scriptures declare man to be not a corruptible body, but a living soul. So, the reason why it is such a great gift to be a human being. The reason why we can be incredible channels for goodness is that we are made in the divine image. Another way of saying it is that we have this transcendental self. We have this soul, this eternal self that is outside of time and space. It is untouched by all the trauma of our life. It is untouched by all of our foolishness and our stupidity. It is untouched by all the vagaries of life. It stands outside of them. And it is, at the deepest level, our truest self. And it is a channel for that goodness flowing from the heart of God. So the secret, it's not really a secret, but the path to being a channel for goodness for ourselves and for others is to learn to identify with and operate from that higher transcendental self. Now... It's not easy. And I'll tell you why it's not easy. Because there's a civil war 
percolating within all of us. So we have this transcendental self, who we really are. And then we have the ego. And let me just say briefly what I mean by ego. The ego is a part of the soul's awareness, but it's cut off from the source. It's cut off from the divine, cut off from the transcendental self, and it becomes closed within itself, it becomes a closed system. And then it has all these stories about who it is and what it is, and it identifies with those stories, but it's always in a state of anxiety at some level because no story, no amount of anything can really fill it up. So then it develops all of these defenses to protect it and to keep it going. And so there, there is this tension, this civil war between the egoic self and, and the soul. And we're all, to a lesser or greater extent, caught up in that battle, divided by that battle. Now, you hear people in spiritual tradition say you have to kill the ego. It, it doesn't work. Don't try. It's really not always easy, but it's very simple. The trick, so to speak, is to turn our attention to the transcendental self. And I'll talk in a minute how to do that. But to listen to those intuitions and those inspirations that move us towards goodness, towards ourselves and towards others. I've quoted this a lot lately. It's one of my favorite quotes from Claire of Assisi. She said, we become what we love. If, we're our, if we are enamored with our own ego and all of its happiness projects, we suffer. If we are in love with goodness, with truth, with beauty, and all of its manifestations, then that's what shows up in our lives. That's what permeates our personalities. And then we become a channel for goodness. And this is the paradox. The more we focus on goodness, the ego doesn't die, per se. The ego begins to recognize the goodness. It recognizes that in the goodness is everything it needs, everything that we need. And so over time, then the goodness will, the ego will release its grip on us. It responds. It yields to truth, beauty, and goodness. It yields to love. So how do you fight the ego? Just turn on the light, and the light dispels the darkness. What is the light? Goodness. Focus on goodness. I'm not saying that we ignore the shadow side of us. We've got to be aware of it. I'm not saying that we ignore the darkness in the world. We have to be aware of it. But we have to look at it at one level through the corner of our eye. What we look at directly, straight on, is goodness. Go back to Yogananda, the prayer, and whatever we're doing, waking, eating, dreaming, silently pray, God, Christ, Guru. That's turning our awareness towards the transcendental self. 
towards the soul, which is illumined by God's light and God's goodness. And slowly but surely, the ego falls aside. And the transcendental self becomes the center of our being, our activity, our thinking, our feeling, our imagination. All right, so let me just talk briefly how we do that. You know, I always like to reduce things to three simple things. Because my wife tells me all the time, you're a simple man. Don't think anything else about yourself. <laughs> so the first one is what, is what I talk about all the time. I, I will always, to my dying breath, talk about this. However you can, whenever you can, nurture silence. Nurture spaciousness. Nurture stillness. Whenever you can, put your cell phone down. You get in a car, unless you're listening to a really good podcast or good music, turn the radio off. Let there be silence. I'm not saying we have to go and be hermits or anything like that, but we have to find pockets for the silence. Do you see, when we're in that spaciousness, in that stillness, in the silence, after a while, the egoic voice loses steam. It's got nothing to grab onto. You watch the news, it's got something to grab onto. You're watching somebody else's misbehavior, it's got something to grab onto. But in that spaciousness, in that silence, that stillness, it's got nothing to grab onto. So eventually, it becomes quiet. And in that silence and stillness, that light of goodness really begins to shine in us and through us. We get inspirations. We get good impulses. And even when we go into activity, it carries there. All right, so that's the first thing. Second thing is really, you, might, you should really like this. Be playful and don't take yourself so serious. See, the ego takes everything, especially ourselves, so serious. And there's even a religious version of being serious and taking yourself too serious. I have to be perfect. That's sort of caught up in that self-analysis and not witnessing, but that obsession with the self. Don't take yourself so serious. Play. Laugh. Children come into the world and they're still, they still have this kind of pristine connection to their souls. Children are much more joyful than adults. Children laugh much more than we do. As time goes on, that gets beat out of them by life. But as we return to our souls, what did Jesus say? Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. We become more, chi not childish, we become childlike. And we laugh and we play. Think of it this way. The, the, the name Jesus literally means God saves. Once that gets into our DNA, then we even give up our, give our enlightenment over to God. A month or so ago, 
somebody asked me, when you're teaching on a Thursday night, what state of consciousness are you in? Well, my ego wanted to say, well, let me tell you what state of consciousness I'm in. But I caught myself. I said, well, I'm in whatever state of consciousness God wants me to be in. And it's true. See, when we get this, what we realize is that ultimately God is running the show. And we can relax. And the paradox is the more we relax, the better channels we are for the goodness. I'll tell you a little story about Yogananda. I've told this before, but it's worth retelling. Kriyananda, one of his direct disciples, took himself too seriously and was always you know, trying hard to be pious and and Yogananda would say, relax, Kriyananda, relax. And he would never relax. So one day they're sitting at a table and Yogananda pulls out two squirt guns, gives him one, and starts squirting them. And Yogananda said, squirt me back. And, no, you're my guru. Yogananda said, if I'm your guru, I'm ordering you to squirt me back. And they had a squirt gun fight. What a great spiritual lesson. And he said, don't take yourselves too seriously. Let God take you seriously. And the, and the goodness will pour through you. The last thing is a little, a little bit deeper. It's not complicated, but it's a little bit deeper. And I just, there's a mistake sometimes in the yogic world. Yes, the goal is to be married, so to speak, to our higher self and to identify with the soul with the capital S, the self with the capital S. But some, I hear people say this sometimes, that they mistake the soul, the self for God. It's not God. Let me give you this metaphor. The soul is an emanation of God. Think of the sun. What does the sun do? It emanates rays of light. The soul is a ray of light. So it's part of God, but you can't say that a sunbeam is the totality of the sun, can you? No. So the soul, which is a ray of light, which is wonderful, it's blissful, it's not God. There's more beyond that. And let me make this very concrete. That there are other transcendental selves in addition to my transcendental self. And part of how we become a channel for this goodness is we learn on a spiritual level to relate to other transcendental selves. So let me start on the human level, ordinary level, and I'll bring it up. One of the rules I have in the Assisi Institute is we don't talk about politics. Why? Nothing will bring you out of your transcendental self into your, your egoic self quicker than talking about politics. Because if we keep the vibrations high, and really what we're doing right now, your transcendental self is relating to my transcendental self, my transcendental self is relating to your transcendental self, and that's why there's peace in this room. That's why there's a holy presence in this room. Let me take it now on a higher level. And this isn't California foo-foo, this is literally true. The more we identify with our higher self, our transcendental self, the more we have access to the heavenly spheres, the astral realms. Sri Yukteswar, in his book, The Holy Science, he says, when your heart reaches this sense of stabilized devotion, 
he says you get access that's called the Mahaloka, the great heaven, the great astral realm. And what's there in this Mahaloka? Saints and sages. So as we develop this conscious contact with our higher self, our transcendental self, and we live more and more out of it, our capacity then to make conscious contact with these higher realms, and there really are higher realms, there really are angels that walk besides us, they begin to be able to consciously influence us. And more and more, we become conscious of their presence, which takes our transcendental self to a whole nother level and makes us a whole different level, increases our capacity to be this channel for, of goodness. I'll share the story, and it's, I'm not special, I'm not different than any of you. I saw an angel once, okay? A long, long, long time ago, it was in my counseling practice, and I was seeing this couple. And really, they were fighting in my office. I was a relatively novice counselor in my 30s. And I was just sitting there saying, I don't know how to help them. They should just get a divorce. That's what I was saying to myself. They should just get a divorce. And all of a sudden, I can't explain. It wasn't anything I did. Something happened. And they looked at each other. They started crying. They started telling each other how much they loved each other. And I saw a silhouette of an angel standing over them. It just happened. But see, the more that we are in the work of goodness and wanting to be a channel for goodness, the more we integrate heaven into our everyday life. That's how it works. I'm going to close with a quote from a Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. And in some ways, he captures the whole essence of this transcendental self. I'll give you a little bit of background. He lived outside of Louisville, Kentucky. He lived in a, he lived in a uh, Trappist monastery. They're cloistered. In fact, he lived in a hermitage the last 10 years of his life on the monastery grounds. But he had to go to a doctor's appointment in Louisville, Kentucky. This is the quote. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people. The goodness was just flowing through him. His transcendental self was running the show. That they were mine and I theirs that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a human being, a member of a race in which God has become one of us. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me. Now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There was no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun.
That's how God sees us. Then it was as if I had suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, or trauma, I would add. The core of their reality, the person that each one of us is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we can see each other that way all the time. The more that this transcendental self takes root in our personalities and our everyday, we learn to see the way Merton was seeing. We learn to see the way Jesus saw. We learn to see the way Nandamoya Ma saw. We learn to see how Yogananda saw. The divine in me bows before the divine in each one of you. I have part two to that, to that angel story. So maybe two or three times the couple came to see me after that, and then I never saw them again. And about a year ago, year and a half ago, there's a Catholic church I go to sometimes, Holy Apostles in the inner city and Lyle Avenue. And as I was going up to communion, they had gone before me and they were sitting back in the pews. I looked at them and they looked at me and we hugged. They're still together.